This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein A Go Go. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy. Uh, we're going to give you some science now for an hour. We've got a couple of fantastic guests waiting in the green room, and in the studio with me is Dr. Lauren. Good morning. Good morning. How stunning is today? This morning is so blue sky yeah. and crisp. And... It's a classic Canberra winter in Yeah, Melbourne. that's it. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've just got back from Fiji, so I'm struggling a little bit because I've got. I didn't hear what you, I just tuned out for a moment there. <laughs> Dr. Ignored Crystal, me. good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. There's people who go to Fiji mid-year, don't they? <laughs> Wait, were you for, there for a conference or for a holiday? No, it was actually a real holiday. It was bizarre. Oh. I did have my laptop and I was working by the pool because it's, I'm an academic and we are... Uh, it's you know. surprising how many conferences get held in Port Douglas yeah. at this time yeah. of year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And how many aren't held in Hobart. Yeah, example. exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bit dodgy. Yeah, nothing against uh, Port Douglas, of course, you know, if you... That's where you got to go for those pharma conf- conferences. That's, That's where you got to go. That's it. The problem <laughs> is you normally get stuck inside the convention centre looking out the small window at the yeah. blue sky and going, yeah. damn. <laughs> well, you know, I, I was in one of those recently and I, I remember tweeting, quite a few people actually liked this tweet where I said, a conference centre center is something like a, a plane that hasn't taken off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Low oxygen, too many people. Bad you know, food. Bad food. Yeah. <laughs> and like, it was exactly the same. You walk yeah. out at the end of the day going, yeah. oh. It's so true. I feel like crap. Where's the fresh air? <laughs> That's yeah, so, so true. But if you're in Port Douglas and you do walk out, you yep. freshen up pretty quickly. That's yeah, it. That's it's that. a good thing. <laughs> now let's get into some science news. Dr. Lauren, what do you got for us? Mm, I was reading about water bears um, t- t- this week. Oh, those um, little guys. Yeah. They're I, cute. There's, well, they're actually not. They're the most ugly oh. looking things in I the think, world, but they, they're what, so ugly they're cute. I what think. are they? So there's little fat little roly-poly, um, you know, things. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, they're, so they're basically these little microscopic um, ocean dwellings. So they're not an actual bear? No, no. No, but no. they look, they look. if you didn't know what the scale was of yeah. the images, you'd go, oh, that looks like some kind of fat panda without its yeah, fur. Exactly, so it's kinda, exactly. Yeah, it's kind of, is sorry, is there a non-fat panda? Anyway. Um, yeah, no, I think they're all But fat. they kind of look like that, but then they're microscopic. You know, they're these they're little, like, mm, single, yeah, yeah. Are they small? Very they're small. Yeah, small. small. They're not single cell, but they're small. Yeah, yeah. But um, but they look, they are, definitely Google them. I'll, we'll put something on Twitter as well. But um, the official name is Tardigrades. Uh, and the reason that they're so interesting. I know what Tardigrades are. <laughs> <laughs> Too smart for us, Dr. Crystal. You've got to go water You've got to bears. get the lingo of the people. The lingo of the people. Water bears. Uh. But the, the reason that they are so interesting to science is because they're just ridiculously resilient and tough. So mm. these creatures can um, last for decades without food or water. Decades. It's ridiculous. They can survive in temperatures between minus 272 degrees Celsius or plus 150 degrees Celsius. Like, they're, they're just insane. Um, they so can, you can boil them you can, you can in boil oil. Them. Exactly, exactly, and they'll still <laughs> yeah. live. Pop them in the microwave. <laughs> yeah, good to go. Um, so the reason that this particular um, paper is of interest, so it was published this week in Scientific Reports from some uh, researchers from Oxford and Harvard, and what they wanted to look at is what would it actually take to wipe them out? Because there's been a lot of papers and you know a lot of uh, hypothetical research about what would happen, say, if an asteroid hit Earth? You know, what would happen to the humans and things like that? But to actually get rid of tardigrades, you would actually have to boil the oceans away completely. So you'd actually need right. all the water to be gone. Hmm. And so what they've done is done some modelling, looking at uh, what sort of astronomical disasters would ha- have to happen to actually cause these tardigrades to become extinct. That's a cheery conversation. Isn't it? Isn't it? And it's funny because it's one of these, you know, it is so hypothetical, but, you know, the... Um, 
research into it was quite interesting, the way they did the modelling. But what they found was kind of cool. So they looked at three things. So how big would an asteroid have to be to wipe them out? How strong would a supernova have to be? Or how powerful would a gamma ray burst have to be? And they found that there are only 19 asteroids in the solar system that are big enough to actually eradicate the water right. bears. That's comforting. Yeah, exactly. And none of them are on a collision course no. with Earth. So that's good. Stable, stable <laughs> orbits. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So that's good. That's good. Um, a supernova which is the explosion of a, a star after it's burnt through all its fuel, would have to happen within 0.13 light years away from Earth. But the closest star mm. that it could actually do that is over... Four. A, yeah. or, or, or even further. Yeah, yeah, yeah so yeah. Um, yeah. they said 147 yeah, years, yeah, okay, light years yeah, away, yeah. so yep. we're safe yeah. with that one. Uh, and the gamma ray bursts, which is um, what happens when there's a particularly large supernova, are so rare that they said that over a billion-year period, there's only a one in three billion chance of, of it happening. So basically they said, you know what, there's pretty much no way we're going to kill these tardigrades. Wow. They're very, very low odds of these things happening. And that kind of makes me feel quite comforted by, mm. in terms of, like, you know, if, if it turns out that we are the only planet out there, that maybe life will Something always will go, go on. on. That's it, that's it, a, exactly. A yeah, yeah, exactly. In a few, you know, billion years, yeah. they'll, they'll find them. And if any, any, yeah, I mean, you won't find them unless you've got a microscope, but yeah. it'll be there. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. it. Exactly, exactly. But yeah, so that was quite quite cute. I, I quite liked that little bit of research. Yeah, whenever I see those pictures of those things, and they're mm. worth Googling, folks. They really are. The first thing I do is cringe slightly because yep. I think, are these, uh, you know, bed bugs or something? Because yeah, they, yeah. they have that appearance, you know. Yeah, they and do. And then, then I look at them and see the little arms and things yeah. coming out, and they look like little little fat pandas about here, and I think, yep. oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, they're, yeah. They're kind of cool. That's it. And, like, I, and I, like, I knew that they were hardy but like mm. reading the actual stats of how long they can go without food and the temperature range like yeah. get, uh, they've got a real soft spot in my heart so cockroaches have just got a better yeah. pr company really <laughs> no, that's I mean, it. That's, yeah. exactly these these guys kick them yeah cool <laughs> dr crystal what do you got oh, i was fascinated this week um by a story uh, that said that scientists from harvard medical school had encoded a gif of a galloping horse into bacterial DNA. Oh, yeah. And, um, and, and, so, and I thought this was a fascinating story. And I wanted to delve a little bit deeper into mm. what this actually meant. Mm. Like, like, and I think it's been a bit confusing, some of the ways it's been reported in the media. It's like, oh, oh, so bacteria can, like, record and project films now. It's like, no, 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 slow down. <laughs> <laughs> it's not quite what happened. But um, I, I thought it was a really fascinating and beautiful piece of technical work because um, the scientists used uh, the CRISPR gene editing technique, which mm. is a very precise way of editing genomes, to put... Um, to put DNA um, into the E. coli bacteria that coded for these pictures. Because if you think about it, DNA is like the ultimate um, storage uh, information system. I mean, mm. every living creature on the earth uses DNA to store their information on mm. how to make everything from brains to broccoli. You know, it's like it's all in our DNA. Mm. Um, and so in the same way that computers store information in a binary code like ones and zeros, you know, you can convert that binary code into a DNA code and store the information because DNA has got four units. We're not just working with the ones and zeros. Mm. They use their four base pair... Um, um, they're four bases, so A's, G's, T's and C's, adenine, guanine, cytosine, thymine. So they've got four units to code with, if you mm. like. And so using that code, you can store information um, into the DNA, which people have been doing for, like, people have put mm. Shakespeare into DNA, they've yeah. put all sorts of things mm. in. But that's always been with just the molecule. We're actually right. now talking about putting that information in the DNA of a living system. Mm. So right. actually storing that information 
in a meaningful way in a living storage system. So it's um, self-replicating in that Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so, so what they did was, I mean, so they picked two, two really iconic images. The first one was an image of a hand, mm-hmm. which is kind of one of the earliest images that humans ever kind of put on a cave wall, you know, mm-hmm. and so they put mm-hmm. that image in. And the way they did that was they, they coded each pixel in terms of its location and shade, and they only had 33 shades of sort of black to white black, white and grey, um, and they uh, represented each pixel as a different sequence of DNA. And then they inserted that very precisely. So they manufactured that bit of DNA So and then they inserted that um, in a way that would be recognised by the CRISPR editing system to put it in a very specific place in the bacteria. And they... Um, and they inserted each of those into a colony of bacteria. That's the other thing that's cool about this story is it's not just putting all of those DNA sequences overloaded into one cell. It's actually putting it into a living system. And then they grew up all that bacteria overnight and then they collected all the bacteria and then sequenced all of their genomes. And so, and then they were able to pick back out those um, uh, sequences and recover the, the DNA and then resort that information, decode it and put the picture back together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they could put the information in at one end, they could grow it up overnight and then they could take the information back out. So that's that's what you want, mm-hmm. you, you know, data in, you know, data security so that data wasn't corrupted while the bacteria were reproducing because of the the place where they put the DNA into the, the genome sequences mm. and they could get the data back out at the other end. The, the thing, just to stop you there for a sec, because the thing I like about that, and I think this is probably unique of any data storage system I've ever come across, is that you're putting the data into one strand of DNA, but you're reading it off another strand of mm. DNA. That's been replicated. Yeah, yeah, so it's not, but it's, you know, it's happening in its own little ecosystem. Yeah. Mm. There's no other data storage mechanism, as far as I know, that does that. I mean, mm. everything else is static. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this is sort of like, you know, you, as long as there's no errors when, when it replicates. Well, they, they I think they left it for a week at one yeah, point. Yeah, that's a really long actually, time. Le- yeah, that's actually mm-hmm. quite, in terms of bacteria yeah. replication, that's, that's actually a lot. a lot. And I think it's because the sequences themselves are very small. They're not trying to put all of the information into yeah. one bacteria because mm-hmm. if they did that, the bacteria would kick some of that out and go, mm-hmm. actually, what's all this junk DNA that I don't use doing yep. here and mm. get rid of it. But mm. in this way, they were able to put all the codes um, into individual bacteria. Mm. Um, and and then they tried it also for a moving image. So they took the, the gif of um, Annie G, the galloping mare, which is one of the first motion picture mm-hmm. images. Mm-hmm. And it's a five-frame image, so it's quite, you know, it's only five frames of image um but again they could do that and put it together in the right order and so they could you know so that the the frames all came back together to make a smooth picture Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and i think the only reason why this is now possible is because of two convergence of two technologies which is one the ability to do um genome screening of a of a population Mm -hmm. because they're not just extracting a single cell and taking the genome out of that cell they can actually take the dna out of the entire population and have um, enough sequencing capability to um, to pull all of that out mm. um, and do that quickly because it's that's something that you know we've been working on for you know decades is mm. how to sequence genomes quickly and cheaply um, and the second thing is the CRISPR DNA editing mm. technology mm-hmm. that now allows you to precisely um, insert and uh, pieces of DNA at very specific places in a genome so it's the convergence of those two technologies that have now um, uh, been able to create this living storage system. And I think a very good point has been made. Um, if you want to know more, please read Ed Yong's article in The Atlantic. Um, it's a great example of a, of a science journalist, you know, reporting stories accurately and well. Mm. Um, and it just goes to show what happens when you pay science journalism yeah, proper, <laughs> well, properly. Science, you science get good stories because yeah. this is one of the few articles I found that actually really mm. um, went, went through yeah. the science, um, mm. not just the, the hey, highlights. bacteria can yeah, store yeah. videos now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and 
And the other thing that he points out is that unlike uh, Betamax or Blu-ray, this technology has been around for billions of years <laughs> and it ain't going to be superseded anytime soon. Yeah, so right. you kind of think of DNA information storage systems as being around for um, a very yeah. long time and will mm. continue to be in the future. Yeah, mm. no, that's very cool stuff. I love the self-replicating aspect of it because mm. it also means that you, if you think about it, like if, you know, rather than printing copies of a book, mm. I could just grow copies and, and palm mm. it out. To, you know, I mean, there's, there's so many Absolutely, and there are actually scientists in this lab. I think the, the one of the team who's involved in this has written his own book in um, in DNA, and he's made <laughs> ninety billion copies. <laughs> Every day. I've made ninety billion copies. Yeah, right. I love that. That's fantastic stuff. Um, now, I've been uh, I've been looking at what I just can only refer to as scientific porn during the week, <laughs> and I know people get freaked out when they hear that, but. The Juno spacecraft, I'm just going to turn this around so you two can see it as well, have been sending back these Ooh. pictures of the Jupiter red spot and you know, other parts of Jupiter. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, this is just amazing stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to talk about it for long here on radio because there's no point. You, you mm-hmm. have to get onto the NASA website, folks, mm-hmm. and there are two current things on there that come up first and second. The first is they've put together this video um, that's basically a compilation of all the all the images taken by the New Horizons spacecraft um, that went past Pluto two years ago. You can believe mm. it's that far away. Um, oh, and so oh, you I see remember this. when it went past. Yeah, yeah. it feels now, like about three weeks ago. It does. But, <laughs> and now they're giving the now they've finally got the well, images Well, this back. is well. There's there's more and more data coming through and so forth. But a lot of the data we already had. But what they've done is they've taken a lot of the topographical information and so forth and turned it into this beautiful 3D sort of flyover of the planet, mm. which is just. It is just fantastic, and it's really worth having a look because it's one of those things where, for me, when I look at a lot of pictures, I forget them, you know, later. Mm. But once you've seen this flyover of Pluto, you won't forget it. It's like such a, a an incredible set mm. of images that just show you what what it looks like. And so that's up at the same time that the Juno spacecraft, and you, you wonder whether these two teams at NASA kind of were saying, hey, don't release it at the same time as our stuff, <laughs> <laughs> because it's both come up about basically in the same week. And so Juno now is doing, you know, it's done all the stuff around the poles of, of Jupiter and it's sent through those amazing mm. pictures that look like sort of, you know, droplets in a pond kind mm. of things, all these different circles around the poles, just amazing. But now it's sent back, you know, what's made Jupiter, you know, put Jupiter in the hearts of so many as this great red spot, this massive mm. storm on Jupiter that's, you know, it's substantially bigger than the Earth. Mm. And the detail of these pictures is just exquisite. Yeah. So get online, folks, nasa.gov, have a look. It's really worth checking out. The thing I love is that we can all do that. Like, yeah. Unlike a lot of scientific research well, that's behind a paywall, you can go onto the NASA website and look at these outstanding and, images. And yeah. you know what, Crystal? It's actually even better than that. NASA gives you access to the raw images, the mm. raw data. So you can go in, grab the raw data from the spacecraft and process it yourself. And a lot of people mm. are doing this, mm. and so you'd... You're getting sort of different, slightly different versions of the processing and you're seeing different, uh, you know, that yeah. that I love, yeah. you know. Citizen scientists out there, if you want to grab this stuff and you've got Photoshop, go nuts, mm. you know, you mm. can just process yourself. So that's a that's a bit different to what people can normally do and I think it's um it's the way NASA's, you know, popularising, you know, the exploration of the solar system, which mm. is fantastic. So anyway, for me, that's kind of science porn sort of stuff. I can't mm. get enough of it. It's brilliant. Um, we're going to take a break for uh, some music, folks, and we'll be back in the moment with our first guest from the Bureau of Meteorology. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. 
you are listening to Einstein and Gogo. It's funny, you know, normally when we have a guest in the studio, we, we take our time, we set them up, but we were having such an amazing conversation before we even got on air. We forgot to do that. But uh, <laughs> Dr. Sue Barrell's in the studio with us. She's the Chief Scientist and Group Executive in Science and Innovation at the Bureau of Meteorology. Sue, welcome to Triple R. Thanks very much, Shane. Now, first of all, before we get into um, what you do there, tell us a bit about yourself, because um, you know, are you a meteorologist yourself? Is that where it all started? Y- yeah, I, I am. In fact, I was just listening to you talking um, in, earlier in the program about astronomy. In fact, I actually started in astronomy. Okay. My PhD was in astronomy, uh, which was fantastic. I love doing it, all mm. about variable stars and things like this, but very remote and out there, and when it came time to think about a career uh there's no way i was going to keep doing research i'm just too practical for that and uh, i'd done <laughs> I, i'd I done ionospheric physics for my honors yep. and so when it came to you know i saw an ad for the bureau meteorology and i thought hey that sounds pretty good it's science it's sort of looking up not as far as yeah, the stars up, but yeah. um uh so yeah so i joined the bureau uh so i trained and became a meteorologist and forecaster and then through my career, I've moved from, from there into research. I, I actually did spend some time in research uh, looking at cold fronts and satellite um, mm-hmm. meteorology and then um, moved into uh, uh, more uh, design, science policy. I did a lot of work with uh, climate change, yep. uh, IPCC, uh, UNFCCC. I was at Kyoto for the Kyoto right. Protocol, oh, cool. uh, wow. things like that. Yeah. And, um, and then moved more into sort of science sort of governance, uh, corporate governance, and then became a senior executive looking after observing systems. So radars, satellites, hmm. boats, Jeez, okay. planes, anything I'm, that observes the weather. I'm, I'm not sure where the start at this point. <laughs> you, you us a bit. But um, first of all, with, with um, forecasting and so forth, I mean, yeah. how much has that changed since you first got into it? Oh, because it massive. seems as though just the data that they have yeah. these days and, and the computing power is just complete. I, I actually did a summer internship when I was a student at the old Bureau of Meteorology, I think it was in Russ. No, not Russ. Lonsdale Street. Lonsdale Street. Yeah. And the old building. And I remember seeing these guys there, and they had like what looked like drafting tables, yep. drawing out the isobars. Yep. Right. Yep. That, that wasn't that long ago. You no, know, it was Twenty years ago, maybe. Yeah. Oh well, a bit longer than that. Maybe it's right. Well, I'm trying to. Yeah, I'm still <laughs> yes. young. You know. <laughs> yeah. It was a bit La- long. Was last century. It was a bit. <laughs> it was last century. Yeah. I, I mean, how much have things changed since oh, then? Oh, massive. I mean, you, you said it. It's data. Data and compute power have just changed. Mm what we do. When I first started, uh, yeah, we drew, drew yeah. the charts and we um, highlighted where cold fronts were and areas of turbulence and things on charts mm. and then we'd scan them or we'd fax them out to people, things like that. When, when I was working in our analysis centre, that's when we first started getting our satellite data um, on a computer screen. Right, we had yeah. colour graphics. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was amazing and you could actually highlight areas where there was turbulence and different types of weather. Um, but satellites, uh, sort of satellites, data and compute power together have just revolutionised uh, how we do science, what we mm. understand about the atmosphere and how it works. Our ability to model the atmosphere has just changed amazingly. Mm. You know, some of the early work on numerical modelling was actually um, in, in, in Australia. Bill Burke at the Bureau of Meteorology right. actually yep. was one of the first sort of to really start running out uh, numerical models. But now it's a, it's a global phenomenon. We work internationally. Mm. 
Uh, we model from the sort of short time range right through to the longest time ranges mm. and, and data really, understanding data, how to use it, yeah. using the right data yep. um, is, and, and is so, critical. Uh, I mean, on that, the Bureau's got this amazing history of volunteers collecting yeah. meteorological information, you know, throughout the land. I mean, how important is that today when you talk about satellites? Satellites everywhere, you know, they're, yeah. they're canvassing the, the landscape all the time. How important is that local sort of network of, of individuals nowadays? Well, it's critical. Sat- satellites uh, do way more than we ever could before. I mean, mm-hmm. the ocean, particularly over the oceans, uh, give us that information that we've, you know, we just never had, you know, 40, 50 years ago. Um, but but over the land, getting right down to the ground level, um, you still need the ground truth. You mm-hmm. still need the data right at the ground level. So getting volunteer rainfall, uh, volunteer, yep. uh, and we have some volunteers that do the full suite of observations, but rainfall in particular, we have thousands, five, 7,000 uh, volunteer. I can't remember the number at the moment. Yeah, it's a lot. Um, <laughs> but you need that information to actually give you the information right down at the ground. So mm. do those volunteers have to get special training to be able to do that or is that something that anyone can do if they volunteer? Uh, no, anyone can do it. I yeah. mean, you, there is basic training. Mm, uh, sure. You know, we, we have, uh, you know, our, our, our um, staff will go out and show you how Great. to use the rain gauges and things. I mean, increasingly even rain gauges are becoming much more automated now as mm. well so but making sure that you, even if you're not actually physically taking the observations making sure that the site is clear yeah. so owning the site mm. looking after it making sure that you know the, the cow isn't drinking out of the, yeah. the rain, rain gauge, gauge. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or the dog doing other things in the rain yeah, gauge. Yeah, yeah. Um, and things like that yeah. so so there's, it's still important to have that personal contact and we have whole families that, that mm. get awards for you know 50 years 100 years of observations it's wow. part down through the family. It's a mm. real, really mm. special thing. Yeah. And, and, and more recently, I, I know with, um, I mean, the state government's been looking at this in, in detail. There's researchers at Melbourne Health that have been looking at mm. the thunderstorm asthma event. I yeah. mean, this is, a, this is a different link for the Bureau to direct to health. Uh, I mean, what, what's happening there in that space? I mean, what's the Bureau's sort of position on well, that? Well, we're working very much with Victorian government with the program to actually look at the research that we, that we mm. can undertake um, to, to help with that, looking at monitoring um, and how you actually monitor and collect the data and integrate that data with our models so that we can understand the, um, I mean, the, the, the obviously the medical, people have the medical knowledge, but the, uh, how, how, how the, 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 um, the pollen moves, the dispersion mm. models, things like that, we can we can feed into, and so we can work together. Uh, increasingly, our models uh, at a finer scale are able to um, uh, assimilate data in more detail and give you a sort of a, a more rapid turnaround. So, um, you know, clearly we work with our modellers and, and with the with the health community. But that interface with mm. the um, with impacts is very much where forecasting is going to now. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm fascinated by the um, the evolving conversation around extreme climate events and health. Yeah. Um, and I think, uh, as well as this example of thunderstorm asthma, understanding more about the heat wave implications on health as well. And that's something that I've seen more and more research coming out of the bomb. Yeah, yeah. We, well, we, we are working on uh, an operational service for heat waves it's it's something that um uh, there is there is a lot of interest in, particularly in the state governments, and and we've got uh, some some active work going on in in our uh, in, in the bureau um, that hopefully we will be looking to sort of deliver as an operational service. Mm. It's in a trial mode. Mm. Um, there, there's there's been a, a bit of a separation, uh, you know, and I'm not sort of almost a church and state scenario 
perhaps um, due to the previous federal governments, I'm not sure, where the Bureau didn't really get involved in the climate discussions. I mean, despite, as you say, you were at Kyoto and others, but there hasn't been a lot coming out of the Bureau in terms of that source of area. You've stuck to weather forecasting as opposed to the, the, the climate discussion. Is that shifting or is that just something we haven't seen a lot of? Well, no, cl- climate science has been in the Bureau forever. Forever. Yeah. forever. So, so you know, weather is the, you know, the, short, the mm. short term and climate is looking at the longer mm. term, the dynamics and how it works. Uh, uh, they build off the same data, but they're yep. quite different. So the Bureau's been in the climate space for a long time, uh, and, but we focus on the science. We focus on uh, climate variabil- understanding climate variability, yep. climate applications, uh, trying to work with uh, farmers and different areas in the community to use climate information and planning and things. But we, uh, we're we very active in uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate mm-hmm. Change. So we have scientists that are participating in the uh, international science assessments. And we do provide v- advice to government, but um, but we you know we don't get into the political mm. side of things. So, so in terms of that, that role internationally, I mean, there aren't a lot of good Southern Hemisphere like you know mm. setups like like what we what we have with with you guys i mean yeah. you, you have this incredible long-standing setup with an incredible array of equipment and, and volunteers and so forth how important is australia's role internationally in that regard given given what the other southern hemisphere options are well, uh, meteorology is a, you know, we, we say it's a global science. It doesn't recognise political boundaries. Mm. Um, physical boundaries, yes. Water, yes. Yep. Uh, but in, in, so in a global sense, uh, Australia is actually really important. Uh, but but um, the rest of the world is also very important to mm. Australia. So international collaboration uh, on numerical modelling, on, on climate monitoring um, is, is really critical. Understanding that one degree or one millimetre of rainfall in Australia is the same as it is in Africa and England, that we're using the same right. technology, or not, not the same technology, the same standards yep. um, and understanding. So global data exchange and working with other countries overseas in terms of the, of, of how you actually measure and the... Um, and verify, you know, what you're measuring uh, is is really important. Satellite, you know, Australia um, relies very heavily yeah, on the buy our time. rest of the yeah. world for satellites. And in fact, you know, we're geographically blessed, even though we're in the southern hemisphere, surrounded by ocean. The fact that we're in the same, pretty much the same longitude as Japan, yeah. it's very convenient because <laughs> the uh, Japanese geostationary satellite yeah, yeah. Hiwari sits over the equator and it sees it as much of us as it does of Japan, mm-hmm. and we get that data free. Mm. And so through the World Meteorological Organization. That free exchange of data globally is is really important. So yeah. we're a we're a great beneficiary, um, but we also um, provide ground truth. You know, Australia has is a big land with not a lot in it, and so measurements that we take here are actually really important to the satellite missions from Europe and mm, NOAA yeah. and in the US mm. and Japan. So we we give back through calibration. Yeah, yeah it's good. Um, I remember years ago when I'd have people people from the meteorological departments and so forth from anywhere in Australia, you know, and whenever you'd, you'd bring up the issue of the seven-day forecast, they'd look really queasy and, like, uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, it was because, you know, because you, the statistical probability of getting it even vaguely right many years ago was, was yeah. pretty low, and people didn't understand that, and, you know, they don't understand the complexity of the modelling involved. Mm. How much has that changed? Are we, are we in a situation now? Because when, when you look at some of those forecasts, those longer-term forecasts, they're pretty bloody good, I have to say. I mean, yeah. how how do people, you know, in the Bureau feel now about that sort of stuff? Is it... Oh, we've got it licked. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't, quote, don't quote me, she says. Oh, there you go. Um, look, the, I, I think we're, we're very confident now in, yeah. our, in our, our seven-day forecasts. And if you look at them, um, you know, they, they might vary. If you issue a forecast seven days out ahead, it'll vary, you know, a little bit, you know, yeah. one or 
two degrees maybe over the course of a week, but that's evolving mm. as the weather situations mm. are evolving. I mean, now a seven-day forecast is probably as good as a three-day forecast was I don't know, a decade or so yeah, ago, wow. maybe yeah. mm. 10, 15 years ago. Um, and that's a combination of the models, the satellites, the supercomputing, all of those things coming together. Um, but increasingly, um, you know, we, we, we're sort of trying to push a bit beyond that. But then you reach the limits of predictability and yeah. we move into more sort of, uh, you know, other types of um, yeah. modelling and forecasts. Yeah. You still got to watch those TV guys who, you know, in October they start telling you what it's going to be like on Christmas oh, Day, though. Oh, that's right. It's a bit dodgy, <laughs> Yeah, you, you've got to track them and see how much they change yeah. over their time. Right. <laughs> um, so I have heard that Melbourne is probably one of the hardest cities in Australia to forecast weather because of our sort of microclimate. Is that yeah. true? Uh, I, I think historically it was, it was harder to forecast in Melbourne um, as much because of the microclimate but because of our geographic location, mm. the fact that everything came off the ocean Sure. Mm. Um, and of course, before we had satellites, we, we often didn't know a lot of what was out there. Yeah. Um, so I think Melbourne's getting it's it's getting easier. We're getting you know more familiar with with how it works now, mm. um, and hopefully uh, hopefully we're getting better. Yeah. Now, now, Sue, before we we let you go, I want to talk a little bit about what you're doing, sort of in terms of the STEM pipeline and and, and getting people, particularly women, into these areas. I mean, over to you on that. What, what's what's happening? What, what's going on from the bureau's well, perspective? Well, we just um, established my new role uh, as chief scientist, and um, part of my responsibility is for diversity, inclusion and STEM. Mm -hmm. So it's really recognising that we need to be putting a lot more high-level effort into attracting more women, um, not into just into science, but but to stay in science and mm -hmm. to move into leadership roles. Yeah. You know, it, it's 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 really well known. There's a lot of research on diversity, which says that if you bring diverse groups together, not just women, but culturally diverse, uh, religiously diverse, you know, all sorts of diversity, then, then you, you get a you know it, it energizes a group mm. and, you, and you can be more innovative, add inclusion to the mix, and you can actually turn that into a really productive and dynamic workforce. So you get better results for your money, uh, mm. for your for your investment, by actually getting the right people engaged. And mm. so uh, from a from a, a government, from a a productivity point of view, it just makes you know yeah. damn good sense. Uh, at a personal level, in terms of women and girls, um, a lot of them really, I think, um, perhaps aren't as aware as they uh, as they should be of the opportunities that science career offers. Uh, girls traditionally only go into science if they're good at it. Right. Um, you know, we don't just need geniuses. We actually mm. need really diverse people right across the spectrum. Um, and so uh, the big challenge is actually raising awareness of the opportunities for careers in science, not mm. just research. Um, I mean, I'm, I, I, I say, mm. you know, I, I see the benefit of applying it um, as, in fact, much more rewarding. So there are so many career yeah. opportunities, but we need to get out there at an early level at school Promote early more. university and get them to make the right choices mm. and yeah. then stay the course. I, I know it's funny thing when you say, you know, just because they're good at that type of comment, uh, the number of mathematicians we've had in here where I've asked them, you know, were you really amazing at maths at school? And they go, no, nah, not at all. Like, in mm. fact, it's with mathematicians in particular, yeah. it's rare that they were brilliant at maths in school. Yeah. They were usually quite average and they got into it later because maths as a career is very different mm. to maths you do at school and yeah, there's that, that, right. that distinction. <laughs> so, Crystal? Oh, I was going to ask a question about that. You made reference to that sometimes um, when we look at women in scientific and technological fields, uh, it isn't often the pipeline going in. It's often, as you say, keeping uh, women and promoting them into leadership roles. Um, and we find this very much in the biomedical science area, yeah. that you've got more women undergraduates and more women even PhD graduates 
being pushed in at one end, but they're not popping out the other end ten years later yeah. as as leaders. Yeah. Um, and and what is your position on how you retain uh, women in technology roles? Look, I I think it, it's it's really complex. I mean, it, it's easy to say, oh well, they go off and have babies and they don't come back, or they go to part time. But you know, yeah, that's part of it, but yeah. it's certainly not all of it. Yeah. But it, and it's very convenient for a lot of men to actually say that. Mm. Um, so. Um, you know that, that that that's one part of it. You know you've got to you've got to recognise that that you know the, mm. there's that that impact. Um, I think also, um, but often you know you see a job advertised and, and often um, you know uh, and this is a gross generalisation I'll say, <laughs> but there might be ten selection criteria um, and and you know a woman will look at them and say, gee, I can do you know eight nine. Oh, I can't do that one. Oh no, I better not apply. Mm. Whereas you know. Mm-hmm. Often, gross yeah. generalisation, a bloke will look at it and say, hey, I'm pretty good. And, and pretty good at three of them, I'll have a crack. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I, I actually don't think that's a generalisation. I think there's actually been study. No, there has been research done in that area yeah. that, that says just that. Yeah. yeah. But I, so I think a lot of it is really getting people to, getting women to apply for the jobs in the first mm. place, to actually build up their um, awareness of their capabilities. Mm. We, you know, we've all heard of imposter syndrome. You know, I'm not perfect, I'll be found out one day. Mm. Um, and, and look, I, I, so I think uh, one of the things that we're really going to be striving hard is, is just to get that pipeline of women to apply for the jobs. You yeah. know, we're in the public service. We have the merit principle. We apply on merit. And, yeah. you know, I wouldn't want it any other way. But you've got to make sure that you've got people over the line to actually, mm. um, you know, come in in the first place. Yeah. And so, there's a, you know, we're going to be looking at um, our schools, looking at universities, various networks. I've got to say there is so much in the STEM space at the moment. The challenge mm. at the moment is actually picking the programs that are actually yeah. add value. Yeah. 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 Well, Sue, look, it sounds fabulous and it's great to see the Bureau taking on some of this work with your new role in particular. And I can't think of a better person to do it because you're a fabulous person to talk to. And it's, it's, it is an exciting space. And coming from where you're, you're, you're background and you know just turn this monitor around you can see this picture of jupiter if that gets you excited oh, it does. it's amazing ah. stuff sorry you know for me this i'm pretty excited about this today. Yeah. um <laughs> people at home can't see it but uh hopefully they're looking at it so sue thanks so much for coming in and talking to us and good luck with this work terrific thanks very much lovely to be here dr sue barrel is the chief scientist and group executive in science and innovation at the bureau of meteorology we're going to take a short break and we'll be back in just a moment with our second guest for today you are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. You are listening to Triple R. In the studio with us now is Dr Melissa Mulraney. She's from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Melissa, welcome to Triple R. Thanks for having me. Now, you're working in particular on the area of uh, sleep issues that happen with kids with ADHD. So first of all, let's just learn a little bit about yourself. How did you get to this point? Okay, so I did a PhD in psychology. Mm -hmm. Um, I chose to focus on child and developmental psychology just because I feel like at the time I felt like it was really key. If kids are having problems, then they're, and they don't, if they're not fixed, then they grow into adults who still have problems that are very entrenched. So I feel like the child space is a really important area to be working in. Hmm. And it affects the whole family, even the family they're in, not just when they're adults, but the family they're in at the time, right? Yeah, exactly. It it affects their siblings, their parents, their schoolmates, like everyone around them. Hmm. Now, let's just unpack ADHD for a little bit because mm-hmm. this is something there's been so much written on this, you know, and there's positive commentaries about it, negative commentaries. I mean, from your perspective, tell us just a bit about ADHD, how you know, how you don't know, how much of a spectrum it is. I mean, <laughs> give, give us a bit of a flavour for what it means. 
Yeah, so um, to have ADHD, children need to be experiencing really quite impairing levels of difficulty paying attention, concentrating, they'll be really disorganised. Um, and then as well as that, some kids are also very hyperactive and impulsive, mm-hmm. so they're the ones who jump out of their seat in the classroom and run around for no particular reason. Um, and as with a lot of mental health issues, people who have ordinary day-to-day issues concentrating, oh, I'm a bit ADHD today. Right. But... Yeah. Um, to actually have the disorder, mm. these are quite severe problems that are impacting on the children's lives mm. and impacting on their ability to learn at school and it's every single day that they're having these issues. And, and when you're in the sort of clinical space, I mean, how, how do you determine that as a diagnosis? I mean, at what point do you sort of go from this is a kid that's misbehaving to, oh, no, hang on, there's a clinical issue here that we have to describe in a certain way? Yeah, well, it's about a lot of information gathering, really. Um, So, obviously, the first point of contact is when the parents are going, oh, there's something not quite right here. I mean, my child doesn't seem to be quite like the other kids. Um, And then they'll go to their doctor or perhaps as a first point of call, they'll talk to their friends about it Mm -hmm. and then they'll make contact with their health system and then... The doctor will refer them to a paediatrician or a psychologist and the psychologist will gather a lot of information about the child's history and their behaviour at home and then they'll speak to the child's teacher Mm -hmm. um, to see if the issues are just within the home environment or if they're at school as well. Right. So you mentioned school there. So is is it normally school school age children where this diagnosis is made or can it be earlier when kids are toddlers and things like that? For ADHD, it's generally not until they reach school. Like parents may notice the issues when they're younger, mm. um, but they're not having a huge impact mm. at that mm. stage. I, I say that with a grain of salt because mm-hmm. I, I'm sure there's parents out there who are going, what do you mean no impact? But it's not until the children get into a structured, mm-hmm. challenging environment that often the problems really start to present. Mm-hmm. Now, your work in particular is looking at the, the issues associated with sleep with That's kids right. with ADHD. I mean, I guess it doesn't take a big leap to to sort of assume that kids who are hyperactive during the day or have these these difficulties in concentration would have trouble. Is it getting to sleep, staying asleep? I mean, what's the deal? All of the above. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, uh, the most common issues sleeping that kids with ADHD have include they just can't switch off, they can't Mm -hmm. get to sleep initially, but then often they're restless in their sleep and they'll wake up and uh, once they've woken up they really struggle to get back to sleep again Mm. Um, but they also have other like kids with ADHD are more likely to have obstructive sleep apnea for example so it's not just the sort of insomnia type things but it's the actual biological sleep disorders that these kids have more commonly. And do you think that that link um, could be causal in either direction? Like, I mean, are you trying to understand how having sleep apnea contributes to attention deficit disorder or how does attention deficit disorder contributes to sleep apnea? 
Uh, so my research is focusing more on the behavioural stuff and the insomnia, but um, you are right. There's definitely evidence that it goes both ways. Mm. Um, and in some cases with obstructive sleep apnea, for example, once the tonsils and adenoids are removed and the sleep problem resolves, mm. a lot of the difficulty concentrating and hyperactivity will resolve as well. Because, mm. I mean, as mm. you would know for yourself, when you've had a bad night's sleep, you yeah. can't concentrate the next day. Mm. Grumpy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, now, in terms of the, the sort of that connection, you, you mentioned sort of behavioural elements and so mm-hmm. forth, and and the sleep problems. I mean, what is the research saying there? What what's going on? Is this something that, you know, I, I can understand if a kid's playing on an iPad yep. until right before bed. Yep. You know, you you kind of really hoping for a bad outcome there. <laughs> so, I mean, what what does that? What is that link? What are you finding? Uh, So there's a few things. So with the light right before bed, so what we know is that any light, but particularly the blue spectrum Mm -hmm. of light, um, inhibits the production of melatonin in the brain. And melatonin is the hormone that actually makes you feel sleepy. Mm. Yeah. So if you're using screens and you're holding them right up close to your face and the light's going directly into your eyes, you're not getting any production of that hormone that's making you sleepy so when you put the ipad down and try to go to sleep yeah. you're not going to mm. be able to i mean it's actually worse than being out in the sunlight essentially yes. I, mean, I mean our bodies evolved to say hey sun's gone down dude go to sleep <laughs> um and we're we're actually bypassing that mechanism or, yeah. or it's it's like we've sort of just changed time zones or something and the sun just never set mm. um but but in a very intense way so presumably then there's a sequence of things that parents can do to offset the ADHD yep. issues around sleep. Yeah. So the study that we just recently published, um, we found that parents who had good enforced good sleep hygiene for their kids, and I'll say what I mean by that yeah, yeah, in I was a second. Say, so um, you, ba- you bathe before you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, those children who had really good sleep habits um, slept better. Mm-hmm. Um, they argued less with their parents about going to bed, probably because they were sleepy. Uh, they were less sleepy during the day. They felt more alert. So just generally, they were much better. Mm. So how we defined sleep hy- good sleep hygiene was having a consistent routine leading up to bedtime that is calm. So like, you might bathe, <laughs> yeah. um, brush your teeth, and then uh, have a story maybe, or depending on the age, read themselves, um, and then go to sleep. So no screens Mm. within sort of at least half an hour to an hour before bed because of the blue light issue, but also because often the things you're watching are very highly stimulating. Mm. So it's hard to switch off after Mm. that. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, many of the things, even our, our phones, I mean, they're designed to continually give us little bits of dopamine, right? I mean, the, yeah. the, the app designers, they do not design them for efficiency. They design them in the exact same way that people design poker machines. <laughs> I mean, you literally, yeah. these, are, these are poker machines we walk around with. Yeah. And for a kid, I mean, it's bad enough for an adult. You know, I know Dr. Crystal, she sees a little alert there and she goes, Ooh, who's, <laughs> who's, who's, who's talking to me? Um, but, you know, for, for, for a child yeah. um, without the adult you know, controls, and, and, and we can't control it. So <laughs> you can't expect them to control it, can yeah. you? No. 
So, so what? So what's the what's the sort of outcome that you want to sort of send out to parents with with you know kids with ADHD? I mean, how do they how do they go from where they currently are to this structure? I mean, I'm sure they all want a nice structured scenario, but yep. but there's a big step there. Yeah, there is, and um, it, it's it's difficult. So it's about working with the child really about what they're going to be happy to Mm -hmm. do leading up to bed and timing of when they can use their screens because if you just try and say no more screens before bed yeah Yeah. you need to shift that time to earlier in the day Um, and a really really key thing that came out of our research was making sure that kids have the same bedtime Mm -hmm. and the same wake up time right on weekends as well as during the week the parents were really good at making sure that they did that on school days, mm-hmm. but then but not gloves on the off. Weekends. Yeah, and then yeah. Come, come Sunday night, Monday, look out. Yeah. Exactly, <laughs> Melissa. Look, it's really interesting um, hearing about some of this stuff, and, and certainly that that massive impact that it can have. Because I know parents with with children with this disorder, you know, they really struggle. So I think anything anything that you know you can tell them in that, in that regard helps. So thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us today, and um, and good luck with this this ongoing work and hopefully um, more and more parents can structure the sleep patterns of their kids more effectively. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Dr. Melissa Mulraney is from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. We're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back with a little piece of news before we finish for today. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. Now, we've got a couple of minutes to go. I just wanted to mention a piece of research. I mean, we, I, you know, I wasn't sure we were going to get time for this today because our guests were so awesome. Um, we, we didn't hold back. Um, but there's there's a graduate student named Estelle Bonney who um, is in the Department of Geology and Geophysics over at um, uh, working with NASA and so forth in, in Hawaii and University of Hawaii. And they've been using what's been around for a while as satellite data on lava flows, essentially, and heat. And what they've they've started to do is try and determine, and you can imagine, you know, if you were living nearby, this might matter, when the lava flow will stop, Mm. right? And you might think, oh, common sense says when it's all come out, but actually (laughs) that's fine. But, you know, that that process can take days, weeks, quite a while. Mm. And so what they've managed to do, they've taken um, this this NASA sensor data they've had, which basically measures the heat emissions from erupting volcanoes. And this data has actually been, uh, I mean, it's been monitoring every square kilometre of the Earth's surface for basically checking it four times a day (laughs) since the year 2000. Wow. That's a lot of data. That's That's a lot of data, right? (laughs) So they've taken all this and they've, they've put together this predictive model that determines when the lava will actually stop flowing. And the way they do it is they watch the the sort of flow increases to like a crescendo Mm. and then it tapers off. And if you know where the peak point is, then you can work out when the end point will be. So you need to know peak lava. Yeah, so peak lava. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure the locals know when that is. Mm -hmm. Um, It's where they've really run for the covers. But um, but, but what this enables them to do is more effectively determine when people can return to their homes and so forth in a controlled way. And you would think, I always had this impression that volcanoes were pretty unpredictable and so forth, but but this data indicates that, no, there's a fair bit of predictability there in terms of lava flows, which you wonder, you know, so you've got to think of where they're looking at this. This is where volcanoes are continually erupting. Mm. So it's not where you have that one big Mount St. Helens type explosion. It's where there's this continual eruption. Lava flows come out. They they 
peak and then they they trail off and so this this is giving them the ability to sort of measure that which i thought was really cool and really cool the fact they've got all this data Mm. like four times a day every spot on the earth heat that's amazing that's a lot of information Mm. so anyway that's that's all we got time for so dr crystal oh well yeah one one story i liked this week was um uh, plants, tomato plants that could uh, make themselves taste so terrible that the caterpillars would rather eat each other. <laughs> <laughs> and I just thought that was oh, like, yeah. you know, the very hungry caterpillar meets yeah. Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love yeah, a mashup. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, you need to write a sequel to that book that the caterpillars would eat each other. <laughs> We're out of time. Thanks so much for listening, folks. Dr. Lauren, good to see you, Dr. Crystal. Thank Always you very a much. And great to finish on that note. I'm Dr. Shane. Until next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.